First Peter chapter four. We're going to look at verses one through 19. Study I'm calling, going for glory. So let's pray. Father, thanks for your word and thanks for the time, Lord, to talk about your word and questions. I pray that you continue to put questions on our heart, Lord, that we can learn and grow. Study to show ourselves approved, Lord, a workman not needing to be ashamed, but rightly dividing your word. And so, Lord, help us to rightly divide your word now and apply it also, Lord, that we can live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you had to summarize the focus of Jesus' life as he pilgrimaged here on earth, how would you? Time's up. Here's the answer. Here's what Jesus said in, in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus said, Father, talking to his father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the word glorify and glorified is seen frequently in these, verse, in these verses. So I would say, in the words of Nacho Libre, Jesus lived, he lived for the glory. He lived for the glory. Now, he didn't live for his own glory, as Nacho did, but he lived for God's glory, the Father's glory. And how did Jesus live for the Father's glory? Well, he glorified the Father on earth. He said, Father, I have glorified you. I have glorified you. So Jesus had not yet gone to the cross yet, but yet he said that his life was consistently lived to glorify God. To summarize and to say simply, Jesus glorified God by walking in his Father's will, by obeying the things that his Father wanted him to do, by being led by the Spirit of his Father. He walked in his Father's will, and because of that, his life was lived as a testimony of glory to God. Now, how about you and I? What's the focus of our life as we pilgrimage here on earth. Or to put it another way, what should it be? Peter gives us insight into what that should be in our calling as we look at verse 16. Peter calls us Christians. The word Christians means Christ-like. And so if we're Christ-like, that means that our motive, our life, our pilgrimage here on earth needs to be lived with the same motive and for the same desire as Jesus did. We need to follow God's will or we need to live for God's glory. But how do we do that as we walk through this world? Well, we're going to learn three ways as we work through this chapter tonight. We're going to see, number one, we're to live a holy life. Number two, we're to be faithful in ministry. And number three, we're to be patient and endure. So first, in verses one through six, we learn that we can glorify God through holy living. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The word therefore, as we know, draws our attention back to what Peter just got done talking about in chapter three. Jesus suffered for all mankind, and he suffered physically to make it possible that all men can come to God and be saved. Well, since Christ was willing to suffer for us in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves with that same mindset. The word arm is a military word. It was used of a soldier putting on his armor. Well, in the same way, you and I as Christians were to arm ourselves with this mindset of Jesus. 
In other words, we're to recognize that physical suffering might come for walking in the will of God and for walking for the glory of God. Paul said, those who live godly will suffer for persecution. It shouldn't come to a shock to us. And Peter phrases it another way here in this verse. In context, he says, he who has ceased from sin suffered in the flesh. So in other words, those people who are not walking in sin who are different from the world are gonna suffer in the flesh. You're gonna be different. And as the Spirit of God works through your life, he's gonna convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and people aren't gonna like that very much. They're gonna ridicule you. You know, they're going to, to persecute you. So you have an option. You can either live like the world and, you know, and have everything hunky-dory, kind of in, in a sense. It's a John Corson word there. You know, or, or you can choose to live for God, to live for his glory, to, to walk a holy life. But when you do that, persecution will come. You might suffer in the flesh. Now, this attitude that we're to put on, this mindset that we're to put on, this holy living, is to be seen in the fact that we're to make a decision to follow after the Lord's will. And that's really the nuts and bolts of it. That's what it comes down to. How do we do it? Well, you follow God's will. You walk in his will, walk separated from him, be led by the spirit of God, and when you do, you will receive persecution. Verse three, for we have spent enough of our past time, our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So we've wasted enough of our time in the BC days, right? Before Christ. That's what Peter's saying here. You waste enough of your time living after the flesh, living for the sinful passions of the world, the things that drive unbelievers. Now, he addresses some of these things that were common in the first century, but if you look at these things, they really are no different than the things that some of us did before we were Christians and, and some, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world. Lewdness. What is this? Unrestrained indulgence in sexual behavior. Lust refers to giving in to unlawful appetites, those passions of the flesh which the Bible condemns. Drunkenness. This is giving yourself over to intoxicating drink. Wild, um, wild parties. It focuses on wild indulgence, just doing, doing what you want to do, right? Living after pleasure. Drinking parties. This is modern day bar hopping, right? Going to a party specifically for drinking, to get drunk. Abominable idolatries. This refers to worship of pagan idols, but also practicing all the, in all the immoral acts that went along with those pagan things. And these things are common today, right, in a different context. Idolatry is more on the lines of putting something before God and living after that thing, whether it's a hobby or a person or whatever it might be. People still indulge themselves in drunkenness. Just watch any football game and see the commercials in between, right? It's all about indulging yourself in food and then indulging yourself in alcohol, getting drunk. And so this is really still what drives the passion of the world. I work in the world. I work with guys, and every Friday they... Talk about getting drunk. That's, all, and that's what they live for. That's their passion. But yet, Peter says, you and I, we once walked in these things. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing these things. So he's talking about the past tense here. So he's saying that these believers, their lives were changed. And we know that their lives were changed because they were receiving ridicule for not doing these things. They were being called, they were being called squares, right? They were being, you know, they were, 
being called people who you know, are, are separated from the world. They were living for the glory of God. They weren't trying to have one foot in the world and then one foot in Christ. They made the clean break and they were receiving ridicule for it. And believers need to do the same thing. We need to make that clean break. Think about if Samson would have made that clean break. He would have been an amazing tool for God. He did a lot of stuff. But man, if Samson would have just isolated himself from the Philistines, if he would have cut off the fact that he was walking in temptation to the vineyard, if he wouldn't have done all the things that God's word told him not to do, man, God could have used him mightily. And sometimes, sadly, Christians do that same thing. They, they try to have it both ways, but in the end, it's only us who suffer in our relationship with Christ who suffer. It might receive ridicule, but in the end, we'll be blessed. I love that psalm. I think it's Psalm 73, where the writer says, man, I almost slipped when I saw the, the wicked and how happy they, seem they are, think they are. But then he said, then I went into the house of God and I understood their end. And Peter, in a sense, does that here in verses five and six. He says, okay, yeah, you might be discouraged right now because everybody's making fun of you, right? Because you know, you're, you're not living like the world, but you're living for Christ. But he says, you know what? Think about the end. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Those unbelievers are going to give an account to God who's ready, who's ready, notice that, to judge the living and the dead. That judgment is going to be the great white throne judgment, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks or so, maybe this week or so, as we, as we work through Revelation, in which the Bible says heaven and earth is going to fled away from the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be a, a serious thing. As these non-believers are resurrected in glorified bodies to stand in front of them and their names are not going to be found in the book of life. And they're going to be cast alive into the lake of fire. Everyone will give an account. Now, for this reason, Peter says, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. What's this talking about? Well, I think the best way to interpret this is talking about believers who have already died. You see, he says, look at the end of their life. And I like that because that gives us a real good testimony of, of what a person truly lived for. Look at a life like J. Vernon McGee or Chuck Smith, the legacy of a person's life, a life that has ended. Yeah, these people who today, they blow up Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. You know, they're living the world. They think they're so happy and everything. But let's see their end. But let's look at the end of someone's life like, like Chuck Smith. And in a sense, that's like what Peter is doing here with these believers, these believers who have died in Christ. But these believers who have already died, they're more blessed because they have believed God's word. They have believed the gospel. The gospel was preached to those who had died and they've been spared from this judgment. Yes, they were judged by men according to the flesh. In other words, they were persecuted. Their life was not easy here on earth. They took the hard road as Moses did, choosing not to accept the pleasures of Egypt, but rather choosing to walk as a child of God. Yes, you might be persecuted, but in the end, these guys are spared from that judgment, but rather they're at the reward seat of Christ. They're gonna, they're gonna be at the reward seat of Christ after the rapture, and they're gonna be living according to God's spirit. They're gonna be blessed and rewarded. So that just shows us that you and I, we need to be separated from the world, and as we do, we can glorify God. Now, secondly, in verses seven through 11, 
We see that we can glorify God by being faithful in ministry. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Peter, as well as all believers in the first century, lived with an expectation that Jesus Christ was going to come back literally and establish his kingdom on earth. The end, Peter says, is at hand. But the end of all things is at hand. All history is moving towards that expected end. The fact when Christ will come back and establish his kingdom on earth. From the fall of man, God has been working out his redemptive plan to save man. God has been preparing a nation to bring his son. God brought his son. Israel rejected him. God, for a time, set Israel aside. He's calling out a church. He's going to rapture them, bring judgment, turn his people back to him, and then bring his son back to receive all those who will be saved in Israel. That's what God is in. And that, that'll be the end. That'll be the, the close of human history. It'll culminate in the millennial kingdom. Now, in light of this, the fact that we're living in the last days and the coming of Christ can be imminent, we need to be faithful in our ministry to the body of Christ. Now, you might ask, okay, well, how can I serve in the body? What does God want me to do? Well, there's things that all believers should do, and Peter addresses those here. This is not just for the pastor or for those in leadership. This is for all believers. First, we need to be serious and watchful in our prayers. The believer needs to make prayer a priority and not get distracted. We need to be serious and sober. The world around us is falling apart, and God has given us a weapon, and one of those weapons is prayer. We've been given the sword of the spirit and we've been given prayer. We, we, you know, if, if you go out into a battle and you, and you neglect your weapons, you're not gonna do very well. In the same way for a church, for a believer, we need not neglect prayer, but we need to take advantage of it and call upon the God of heaven and see what he might do. Second, we need to have fervent love for one another. Peter spoke of love already, this fervent love, but he addresses it again, but specifically in regard to overlooking people's shortcomings and weaknesses. Now, Peter here quotes from Proverbs 10, 12. And what he's saying here, he's not saying that we should wink at sin or even overlook sin by, yeah, believers just living in sin. That's fine. They can just do whatever they want. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is that we should overlook minor faults and failures. You know, in a church, yeah, there's people from all walks of life, people from different backgrounds, people from different struggles. And not everybody's going to be perfect. Not everybody's going to say the perfect thing to you or, or do something perfect. You might even see a believer out in the world. They might not do something perfect. You know, but you know, we need to love that person and continue to minister to them and, and build them up. As Paul said, we need to uphold the weaker. You know, uphold the weak. Those who are strong need to up, uphold the weak. And that's what a healthy body does. And that's what Peter's encouraging the church to do here. Third, we need to be hospitable with one another without grumbling. Hospitality is to show Christ's love through physical means, such as opening up your home, sharing food, helping those in need. Hospitality is to be done for the glory of God, and you know it's not done, you know, excuse me, you know when it's not done for the glory of God when you're grumbling. <laughs> you know, you know you're not doing it by the Spirit of God when you're grumbling. Like, oh man, I don't want that person to come up right now. Praise the Lord, you know, God, to God be the glory, you know, that's, that's grumbling, right? And so... We need to be led by the Lord and, and allow the Lord to use us and, um, and minister through us. As each of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, 
Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So each believer in Jesus Christ has been given a gift. Every person, each one has received a gift. That's a promise. So you have a gift, a spiritual gift. And the spiritual gifts are given in Romans chapter 12. They're given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And there's some even mentioned here um, in this passage. There might even be, be more. But you've been given one gift. And the way that you know that gift is by being with the body. And by being involved with believers and seeing what God would do and how he would use you. And so all of us have been given a gift. Now, the Bible doesn't really stress how we receive gifts. The Bible stresses how we use those gifts. Because the gift is given to you by the Holy Spirit. You didn't earn it or deserve it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to, you know, run around the church a hundred times in order to receive it or say special phrases in order to get it. You've been given it by your faith in Jesus Christ. But now your responsibility, as Peter says here, as a steward, as a servant, is how you would use that gift and hone that gift and exercise that gift. And he gives us some guidelines here in these verses. Notice a couple of these things. Peter says, first of all, we're to minister one to another. This shows us that our gift is, um, is given to serve others. It's given to serve others. The word minister here means servant. And that's why we have these things. We, we've been given a gift not for ourselves or not for our own glory, but for the building up of the body, for the encouraging of others. Second, we're to be good stewards of God's beautiful grace that he's given us. A steward is entrusted with responsibility by the master. And so Jesus talked about the parable of the talents. And you know, in those days, they would have a steward and they would entrust him with their wealth and different things. It was the steward's responsibility that he'd be faithful with his master's wealth. You don't want to give somebody you know, your money and say, hey, can you keep this for me? And then two weeks later, come back and says, hey, man, I got a couple pennies left. I went to Jack in the Box and got a couple Jumbo Jacks. I'm sorry. I was hungry. You don't want that. That's not, that's not a good steward. Well, in the same way, the Lord has given us gifts. He's given us talents. And we're to use those things for his glory. We're to be faithful with them, but we're also to expand them and grow in them. And that's our responsibility as we abide in the spirit, as we walk in the word, and as we fellowship in the body. Also, we're to minister scripturally. Verse 11 begins by addressing those who have speaking gifts, such as teaching, prophecy, exhortation, or evangelism. These gifts, as well as all others, are to be used biblically. They're to be used biblically. They're not to be used, you know, with our own interpretation or how we think they should be used, but they should be used biblically. And how do we know if they're used biblically? We know that they'll be used biblically because they'll draw people's attention to Jesus. And people will draw closer to Jesus and be encouraged by Jesus. After all, that's what the Spirit came to do, right? Jesus says, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will take up what is mine and give it to you. He'll glorify me. So anybody who takes their gift and starts glorifying themselves and exalting themselves isn't using that gift for the glory of God, nor are they using it in the Spirit of God. We're to use our gifts in the power of the Spirit, not in the flesh. Our ministry must be done in such a way that the ability that we have comes from God and not our own. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't study, but it does mean that we need to look to God for our resources and how we're to minister. 
So when the believer ministers the way God wants us to minister in the body and in the world, God alone gets the glory, and he alone deserves the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we come to our third point in verses 12 to 19. In these verses, we learn that we can glorify God through patient endurance. Beloved, do you not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you? But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with, with exceeding joy. And so Peter reminds these guys, hey, listen, if you receive persecution, it, couldn't, it shouldn't come as a shock to you. You shouldn't be all stumbled and, and discouraged about it. But you need to remember that and, and expect it. But also you need to rejoice in it because your persecution shows that you're identified with Jesus. People are persecuting you because they see Jesus in you. People didn't like Jesus when he was on the earth. He shook things up. They just wanted to get rid of him. They said, hey, just kill this guy. We can get back to our religion, right? Just kill this guy, get him out of the way, and we can all live happily ever after. Well, that's the same thing they do with Christians, but the problem is, is we don't die, we multiply, right? As it happens to Christians, man, you know, you start persecuting Christians and they begin growing. You can't get rid of them. They're like, they're like roaches in, 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 in a good way, in a good way, right? I mean, you know, we, we just, I mean, you can't get rid of us. And so it, it drives unbelievers crazy. But it's a good thing because God has convicted them. He's convicting their conscience. It's like a goad. So if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice. You're identified with Jesus. And the fact you're identified with Jesus is proof that when he is revealed, you will also appear with him in glory. The fact that people are persecuting you should cause you hope because, man, people see Jesus and I'm a Christian. I'm going to be glorified with Jesus one day. Verse 14, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So was Peter thinking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here? As he remembers as Jesus was sitting, they were all standing around him as the Lord said, hey, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of God. And Peter takes that same truth and applies it to you and I. He says, listen, guys, you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're blessed. If the name of Christ is reproached, blessed are you. Blessed are you. People see your holy behavior. It's a demonstration that the Spirit of God is living in you because the Spirit convicts the world of sin. Now, since Peter is talking about being persecuted for conduct, he needs to make sure he clarifies here what kind of conduct we should really be persecuted over. We shouldn't be persecuted for being annoying or being sinful, right? For being a thief and all these different things. In a sense, you should be persecuted for that. No, I'm joking. No, but you know, I mean, you know, so he's not saying, hey, listen, make sure that if you're persecuted, you're persecuted for righteousness. You're you're persecuted for doing those things which God called you to do. If you are doing those things, if if you have a good conscience that you're following the word of God, well then, blessed are you. You can rejoice because you're a Christian. You're Christ-like. Verse 17 for we have, uh, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Here's one of those tough verses in scriptures. I'll try to make it simple here. The judgment that began at the house of God is another way of referring to the persecution of believers. It's just another way of saying it. This persecution was allowed by God for a good reason. It was to purify believers and cause them to grow in the image of Jesus Christ. And so God at times allows that. He purifies us. He, he washes us and, 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 and works in this way. Now, if God is even allowing his believers to suffer fiery trials, and then it can be assured that non-believers will also stand through a fiery trial. And that fiery trial is going to be the great white throne judgment. And that, you know, that fiery trial is going to be when, um, you know, when they're judged. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene, he says, hey, Christ is going to come and the winnowing fan is in his hand. He's going to clean out his threshing floor. He's going to gather up his wheat and cast it, you know, the other chaff into the fire. And so God comes to purify. God comes to work. And so, yes, one of the ways that God does that is by allowing us to go through trials. He does it through his word but he also does it through his providence. Unbelievers will, in the end, also suffer judgment. Therefore, in light of these things, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So in light of the fact that God at times does allow us to suffer in his will for good, we're to give him glory. And we're to not turn back to the world or or seek to, you know, live in sin when hard times come, but we're to walk in God's will and glorify him. We're to follow Jesus. He, he gave us the example. We're to live committed to the Father. So in closing, every day we awake on this earth, we have a choice. Am I going to follow God's will? Am I going to live for his glory? Am I going to take up my cross and follow the Lord daily? If I choose to follow Christ's example, that might include persecution. But if persecution does come, well, then we're blessed because that we know that we're identified with the Lord. But either way, whether we are blessed or we're in a time of buffeting, we need to live for the glory of the Lord. Amen. 